Navigating the Datascape with Porter Chavez and special guests. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Datascape podcast. Today, I have with me Joey Jablonski. Joey, did I just say your last name correctly? Absolutely. All right, great. Joey Jablonski, which is Pythian's VP of Analytics. Joey actually was just hired a few weeks ago with a brand new mandate and new strategic direction all around data-based services um, line of business. So, Joey, maybe let's give uh, our listeners an introduction about yourself. Let us know a little bit about you, your history, and uh, and uh, we'll take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm certainly glad to be here. I know the Pythian brand. I knew a lot of people at Pythian for many years through the industry and when the opportunity to join and help the company continue to grow, continue to innovate in our offerings was just a just a unique opportunity that I was excited about. Uh, my background is about 20 plus years in the high tech space. I actually started working uh, for the US government, uh, building high performance computing platforms for the US Department of Energy, the US Department of Defense. Um, okay, these were cool. systems that were large number of you know Linux nodes interconnected by a you know high speed low latency interconnects things like Miranet and InfiniBand, uh, working with parallel file systems like Lustre, um, really gave me an appreciation for data at scale, kind of what can be done when you have the ability to connect large amounts of computational power with you know complex data sets that need to be analyzed at ever you know finer grains of uh, of detail. Uh, from there, jumped over to the commercial side. I was with companies like Cloud Technology Partners as their chief technology officer. Spent a bunch of years at Dell in the office of the CTO doing things like mergers and acquisitions as an enterprise technologist. And then I led the global uh, high-performance computing team at Sun Microsystems for a long time oh, cool. prior to them being bought by Oracle. So I, uh, I've, I've been on both sides of the acquisition game. I've bought companies and I've been acquired over the years. So. Um, Immediately before joining here, I was with uh, with iHeartMedia. I led all their data engineering, uh, their data platform systems for doing audio sequencing and measurement of our uh, our listener engagement. So, cool. um, so here here at Pythian, really, my goal is help build out complementary capabilities to what we already do around data engineering, building data platforms, and operating data platforms. So there's really four or five areas that I'm going to focus my time. First is around data strategy, you know, partnering with the chief data officers, the VPs of architecture within our clients, and help them understand what are good workloads to onboard to their analytical platforms. How do they sequence out work? What are use cases that have defined crisp ROIs? Building out our data science and conversely our visualization capabilities. That is really helping teams understand what their data is saying and predict what those next actions are really leveraging data science in a meaningful way to understand what's going on in our business and then identify the next best actions for us and then uh, the data governance space partnering with our clients to help better understand their compliance and regulatory obligations turning that into policies and technical architecture that we can then implement through our data platforms, our ETL pipelines, or other sorts of tooling to control access to data. Absolutely. And this, I mean, all these topics, you know, data governments, data strategy, data quality, they have been part of the IT industry, obviously, for a very long time. But it seems like in the last five years, people have actually finally woken up to how important these things are 
And I mean, part of it could be regulatory pressure. Part of it is a security landscape. Part of it is the competitive landscape, right? Of who is or not leveraging the power of your data. Do you see this the same happening in you know in different scale of companies, uh, startups all the way to the big uh, Forbes 500, or do you see it more in the big shops, or actually maybe more in the smaller shops? Like, what's your take on it? I, so this kind of drive towards data governance, I really see at, at companies, regardless of how big they are, okay. and also regardless of how they started, you know, a digital native organization, maybe a new fintech organization, is really going to have the same requirements bestowed upon them as, you know, a Northwestern Mutual or a Fidelity or an RBC that's been around for generations in some cases. So this need for data governance is, is evolving out of three things. It's coming out of, um, as you mentioned, regulatory requirements. You know, we're seeing new consumer privacy laws being passed globally and within individual states. And that's driving organizations to think how they use their data and make sure they're within compliance of those, those rules. There's a trust issue. You know, a lot of organizations, as they've shifted from human-centric decision-making to more programmatic or more automated, there has to be that inherent trust in the data, that it's accurate mm -hmm. when we produce it, it's accurate when we integrate it, it's accurate when we make decisions. And that's driving organizations to think differently about how they measure and respond to data quality. Um, and then the third is what I call enabling the edges. We just simply have more people consuming data within organizations than we did 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, many years ago, you'd have an organization that has a small pocket of BI developers or a mm -hmm. small pocket of business analysts, and they kind of dealt with everything themselves. So go governance was a team or a department role. Nowadays, you get companies like Amazon, like Google, that really make their data sets available for everyone internally and expose a subset of it to their partners. That sheer number of people accessing the data means that you have to have quality measures. People have to be aware of what the data means, how it's described in business terms, uh, so that they can be autonomous, so people can operate independently. In your opinion, how much of it is a technical challenge as opposed to an organizational process challenge. Yeah. I, so I always like to argue that building new technology is really easy. Like any engineering team can go out and make vendor selections and choose technologies and integrate them. That part of building technology is really easy. The two challenges that come in are the organizational component, fundamentally changing how people work, taking mm -hmm. people from trusting their own gut to trusting analytical models, trusting the decisioning systems they have in place, and building a feedback loop. The last thing you want to do is build an analytical model that makes a bad decision and then continues to make the bad decision. You want to make sure that feedback loop is built so that once we've made a bad decision, we can annotate it, we can correct it, and make sure it doesn't happen again. So we've got to build business processes that don't run in parallel to our technology systems, but intersect with our technology systems at the right time and the right place to continually improve. The other dimension to technology that I see as a challenge is legacy or tech debt. A lot of organizations okay. are still stuck on mainframes. They're stuck on legacy databases on big iron Unix. And those systems present inherent challenges. It's hard to understand the lineage of your data. 
they provide limitations on the amount of compute capability that we can have when we query the data. So we can't query it as often. A lot of times they'll have legacy data structures that make it very difficult to pull data out in a denormalized way so we can do analytical work on it. So organizations have to be conscious of building their new platforms, modernizing from their old, retiring the legacy systems, moving their data and capability to the new ones, and articulating and architecting those business processes that intersect in the right places and provide for a meaningful experience that's improving over time. Yeah, uh, Something I've, I've spoken about before is how, uh, when you mentioned something, for example, as data strategy, it has to be moved all the way up the chain to even if you're going to build or acquire some sort of operational software, you should already be uh, coming up with all the questions you need about the data that's going in there because all this stuff is going to feed your analytical systems, right? So if you're going to pay for somebody or a vendor or you're developing yourself right from the get-go, you have to start asking, okay, how, how is the data going to be presented to us? Like, how is the data being controlled and kept on data quality standards from the app perspective? Because you and I know, like, one of the biggest issues with data quality is that somebody writes an app that's lazy and it gives somebody a free text form field that should have been, like, uh, an actual list box, right? That they pick something very specific. The moment you let people type whatever they want, it's just a, you know, a recipe for data disaster, right? So all these this way of thinking has to, sometimes it goes it goes too, too late, right? People start thinking about it. Once they're already looking at the data from their source systems, well, at that point, you're gonna keep getting the same issues. You might write a transformation that will handle one of the data quality problems that you have today, but if there is no data strategy or no data quality being pushed up from the moment you start to generate the data, then it's just kind of like kicking the can down the road. So that's one point of, of I, I see like a blind spot that many organizations seem to have. They think about it way too late. Yeah. I, I see the same thing. And I think there is, there's a lot that we can learn from the user experience design domain. This idea of experience design and the journey of our different personas or our different users. How do those users consume the application? Where are they when they're consuming it? Are they on a mobile device? Are they sitting at their desktop? Are they in a rush? Are they not in a rush? And what can we do to simplify that process? Um, one mistake I see with a lot of websites out there, whether it's job application sites, whether it's um, you know applications for a mortgage or things, it, many of these systems require users to enter data that can mm -hmm. very programmatically and very easily be looked up by a system. Um, one example is my mortgage. You know, when my wife and I bought our house a couple of years ago, we went and filled out a mortgage application. Well, under the mortgage application, it had me enter my current address, the street and number, the city, the zip code. Well, that's inherently asking for a mistake. I could have typed the street name wrong. I could have typed drive instead of court because I'm not paying attention. Could have forgotten the zip code. These are areas where, from a data quality perspective, if we look to experience design principles and we say, well, why would the user have to look it up? Couldn't we just mm -hmm. query the browser and get their geospatial location? We could. Maybe that's got a privacy concern, 
But maybe if we just let the user start typing their address and we auto-complete it for them so they don't have to enter the whole address. We've discernibly improved our data quality from the beginning. Mm -hmm. We've given our user a richer experience. We've saved them potentially on the order of 30 to 40 seconds for that phase of the, the application and given them a better feeling that we already know about them. This is going to be a positive experience because we're not going to ask them to tell us information multiple times. No, we're going to make it easy, right? Yeah, Removing friction. Exactly. The removing friction is a a huge point. And then carrying that on, make sure that as a user, I should never have to enter the same piece of information twice if I'm at different stages of a journey or a process. Uh, So looking to some of these and figuring out how we can make it easier on our users will noticeably affect our data quality in the downstream. And how do you approach these uh, these data strategy, data governance, data quality projects when you go in and it's a more of established uh, enterprise and they've just grown organically? And at that point in time, you know, they kind of like have a, they basically have a spider web and they then they want you to turn it into, yes. a, you know, I don't know, like a beautiful canvas. So how do you start to deconstruct something like this? Like, you know, sometimes it's very overwhelming for people to even begin because they just don't see a way that things can be uh, restructured or they think the ROI is too far in the future, even if they start. Yeah. So I think, you know, first I like to understand, you know, what are the organizational objectives? And most organizations in the commercial world have the same two objectives. We want to increase revenue. We want to decrease our OPEX, our operational costs. Um, Corporations will then have a strategy that's associated with that. We're going to increase revenue by going into new markets. We're going to decrease OPEX by automating things, by removing customer defects, by decreasing returns. Once we've grounded our conversation for data strategy and data governance in either of those buckets, increase revenue, decrease OPEX, makes it very easy for us to prioritize our work. So as we start to dig under the covers, we're going to identify areas of data quality, slow data, data being incorrectly integrated, lack of gold records leading to mismatch between systems. We can then look at those through the lens of what's going to be the value on the other end of doing this. Will it help us sell more to our customers? Will it help us build a deeper relationship with them? That gives us the idea of kind of how do we prioritize our work so that to your point about the ROI, we can have some near term hits, problems that are lower risk, problems that are lower complexity, we can do quickly. And then the longer term ones that we know are going to take multiple years worth of transformation. Pieces to make sure that we really deeply understand where our data is coming from. A lot of organizations try to improve without fully understanding how many steps their data is going through. We really mm-hmm. need to make sure we've got a clean map of how data is flowing across the organization. And then we can figure out how to simplify it, take steps out of the process. Is the cloud the go-to architecture uh, by default today? Is there a still, you know, scenario, uh, assuming, you know, there's no regulatory issue where you can't go to the cloud, is still there? Is there still a scenario where today you would recommend somebody just stay with their on-premises architecture? The, the only real technical place where I can see localized systems is areas where 
an outage is absolutely catastrophic and you can't get reliable enough connectivity. And I'm thinking about things like manufacturing facilities, like there are specific factory locations where you may not be able to get highly reliable internet. You don't want the machines to go off because the capital costs of them are so high. Um, so in that case, you're going to need some sort of edge computing to keep mm -hmm. things running. It doesn't mean the cloud's not part of the picture. That edge may be fed by analytical models, by source data sets, by configuration management from the public cloud. But they're given the ability to run for a period of time without that connectivity. Without connectivity, yeah. Yeah. On the analytical side, I struggle to come up with a place where your business needs are not met by public cloud and you're able to get the same velocity by going on-premise. I mean, even, even in the best of cases, on-premise hardware takes days to weeks to show up. It takes days to weeks to be configured. It's very difficult to change your capacity. As your analytical teams are experimenting, always going to end up being either capacity limited or have an overcapacity that's expensive to have around. So I personally cannot think of workloads on the analytical side of the house that are not a solid fit for public cloud just because of the flexibility and velocity. And then you look at the roadmaps. I mean, AWS, Google, mm -hmm. Azure, they release dozens of new features a week in terms of capabilities. It's just a very high velocity of roadmap. Uh, and being a practitioner, someone who's on the data science team, someone who's on the visualization team, that makes your life easier. Every one of those features is something new that you can do. You didn't have to wait for new software updates, new deployments, those sorts of things. What about on the staffing side? Uh, like you mentioned, you've been in uh, some pretty high level positions as well. You probably had to you know, try to staff and build uh, teams that were uh, data pros or data experts. What do you usually recommend clients do when they're trying to build their data capability, especially nowadays, obviously, uh, IT in the last couple of years has gone through a, a big transformation. IT talent is, is in high demand and suddenly everybody's open to, to remote work as well. Um, again, what, what do you recommend uh, if somebody's just starting up, they don't really have an official uh, data practice or just uh, building an analytics team? What's, what's like the minimal configuration that you recommend in terms of staffing? Yeah, absolutely. So I tend to think in terms of what makes for a high velocity team. And a high velocity team comes from several dimensions. They have a clear line of sight to how their work contributes to the organization. They have the necessary mix of skills to be self-sufficient, that they can action against their work without having to go to lots of external teams, create dependencies. And it's a team that is empowered to make decisions within their own constructs so they can execute. In the context of Amazon, they tend to call this a two-way door decision, that if you can go both way on the decision, then the team can make it themselves. It's only when you're making those one-way door decisions, things that can never be reversed that you have to go mm. outside. So you create this high-velocity team with these dimensions. And from a data science perspective, what this means is that you have data scientists and data engineers that work together. They have the same set of priorities. They have the same set of routine for daily standups and for work planning. That way, when they get a project, whether it's building a predictive model, whether it's measuring the outcome of consumer testing, they can source the data themselves with data engineers. They can prepare it and the data scientists can analyze it 
and present it back to the business. In the sense of building out data platforms, you end up building a team that's a combination of data engineers to do data sourcing, to do data enrichment, along with SREs, individuals that can help build highly reliable platforms, that can instrument it with telemetry to understand how performance is. Um, so as an organization is getting started, they need to build that kind of definition of a high velocity team. They need to go look at the skills they have in the organization today and identify, can we train to get the new skills we need? Can we build a data literacy plan that shares that knowledge around technology and tools and standards? Or do we need to go to the market and hire individuals? I find it's got to be a balance. You need to maintain some of your own folks internally that you can train with new skills because they already have the business knowledge. And then bring in some external folks that have got a different complementary set of skills, but may not have as much business knowledge. And collectively, they can then work together on these high velocity teams. Do you think, or what's your opinion on the necessity of multi-cloud strategies today? Is it really, you know, uh, is it is it a, a liability to put everything in one cloud? Do you think it's also, you know, maybe it might be attractive, but it could be very difficult staffing for expertise on multiple clouds at the same time. Uh, what's your take on it? Where, where would you say, like, you know, look, for your scale, your problems, you you might want to look into doing multi-cloud deployments? Yeah. So I think there are, my, my general bias tends to be pick one thing and get exceptionally good at it. Okay. The minute you have two cloud vendors, you end up inherently being half good at each of them. So you're not going to be as aware of the roadmap and the new features coming out. You're not going to be as deep on the security controls that you can put in place to protect your data assets. So my default tends to be single cloud because it allows you to develop that expertise. That being said, the architecture of public cloud providers are fundamentally shifting to allow you to be multi-cloud without taking on the full risk of setting up infrastructure and boundaries and controls. So it allows you to be multi-cloud in a managed way. One example is services around image analysis or audio analysis. Google, Amazon, and Azure, all three provide very much PaaS layers, APIs that you can consume, that you can send an image and have it tagged accordingly or categorized. For an organization that already has all of their business systems sitting on one public cloud, whether it's AWS, Google, or Azure, but they want to take advantage of that analytical capability that's very API-driven, that's a strong architectural pattern that they can take. Essentially, all they have to do is send the data to that cloud vendor, they get an answer back essentially answers as a service for them. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, they're not storing a lot of data locally on that secondary cloud. They're not having to operate infrastructure and operating systems and virtual machines because they're consuming it as a service. So it's a very low risk way to add a secondary vendor, bring in specialized capability to the environment. So if an organization is going to go down that multi-cloud path, I tend to advise you know, focus on how we can be programmatic and how we consume our second cloud. Let's not build out a bunch of infrastructure. Let's consume their services in a, a low-risk way. And what are some of the, as people start to apply, um, you know, let's say they start to put in together a program of data governance, data quality, this, they try to start following a particular data strategy. What are some of the most common roadblocks 
that they they likely hit as they embark on these journeys? I think the biggest one I see is is people movement. You know, I, technology yeah. and particularly in the era of the Great Resignation, people moving around tend to affect a strategy because new folks want to put their own lens to it. They want to put their fingerprint on it. So. Mm-hmm. Anything an organization can do to establish their data strategy as greater than one person, that is capability that everyone is bought into, everyone's aligned with, it'll ensure you don't have that change of of program just because there was a change of guard in the organization. I think that's one. Um, External factors are a big one, you know, especially in this world where we got hit with COVID and organizations shifted literally overnight to working from home, to being mm-hmm. more data centric. They then invested very heavily in what they saw as the new model for consumers, for product development, that sort of thing. And that we're starting to emerge. And some people are working from home full time. Some are going back in a hybrid model. We're inevitably going to continue to have external forces, whether it's supply chain, whether it's the economy, whether it's privacy laws that affect us. Um, You can't plan for all of them, but you can at least make sure your organization is agile and nimble enough to shift and and change direction when necessary. The third that I see come up is starting with what we're building and not why we're building it. What I mean by this is defining a project as we're going to build an enterprise data platform or we are going to migrate our data warehouse. Um, essentially, mm-hmm. we're defining success as completing an action, not garnering adoption. Um, I'm a big fan of measures of platform adoption. That is the number of users on our platform, the amount of time they spend engaged with that platform, and the value they get from it. Better decisions, more revenue, lower OPEX. So any project we define needs to be grounded in those. What's the value to the organization? We can build the technology, we can make it operate, but we want to make sure that the way we speak about it is about its impact and its adoption. And in terms of data education, for example, I sometimes think about this too. Um, you know, kind of like how nowadays everybody's got to take like a security training. If you're, a, you're a, if you're an IT worker or if you're a knowledge worker in general, everybody takes one of those security trainings where they you have to, you know, click and say that you know how to spot a phishing email and stuff like that. I see a huge lack of the same thing for data education. And I think COVID also brought this definitely to the forefront where the average knowledge worker, it seems they have a really big difficulty interpreting data or even interpreting visualizations. And also very important to know when the data is being presented to them in a way that it already has a bias as to how they want to show it, right? Classic example is when somebody uh, uses a, a very specific scale on, let's say, a bar or a line to make an effect look bigger than it actually is, right? Because, you know, if you're like on a really small scale, for example, then any small movement will look huge visually, right? It, do you see that there is there a lack of data education? It Should it be universal? Should it be uh, just focused on, you know, business, business type of professionals? What's your take on that? So you're, you're spot on. There certainly is a gap in, in most organizations today in, in overall data literacy. And mm-hmm. as part of a data governance program, as part of our larger data strategy, we really should be standing up a data literacy program. And for large organizations, this could be 
number large numbers of people they're focusing on our curriculum and our learning and development goals for a smaller organization this may be consuming outside content that we share for this data literacy program to be successful there's several things that we really need to make sure it includes it's got to include organizational metrics what are the core kpis that we measure our business against that way everyone is uniform in how we establish value, how we talk about our impact to the business. Mm -hmm. Literacy has got to include how we use our data and what we can use it for. Really making sure that our team understands our position on data privacy, our position on data sharing and data exchange, and our position on identification of individual consumers versus you know, anonymizing those data into larger cohorts for analysis. Um, our literacy program has got to include how we work. You know, how do we hand work off from one team to another? What does that team expect in terms of quality of the data, quality of the model, actionability of the outcome? The literacy program has got to include what tools we use. If we're a Databricks on Microsoft Azure shop, our literacy program should include how to do data transformations in Databricks. If we're a Snowflake shop, we should talk about how to optimize our queries on Snowflake for minimal cost, but maximum performance. And then finally, our literacy program really needs to enable everyone to know our resources, to know where's our data catalog, how do we annotate our data to find it easily, so that people aren't hunting and pecking for information in inconsistent ways. They know where to go, they know how to search for it, and they know how to improve the quality of it. That if they have a data set that was annotated incorrectly, they know how to fix that so it's better for the next person that comes. This literally real this literacy program really grounds everyone in how we work and how we operate as a team. Yeah, actually, I, I, now that you you mentioned that, it sounds it sounds like something that would be extremely extremely useful, extremely powerful, and I rarely ever see something structured. It just seems to happen ad hoc, right? It's all organic. It's not, it doesn't get a structure. It doesn't get a, a, an executive backing and actually, you know, make it mandatory for everybody to consume. In terms of the, in terms from a technical perspective, are you happy with the tooling that is available today to execute on uh, any sort of, you know, governance or quality project? Do you think there are still gaps, tools that you would like to see that maybe they're just not, not as fleshed out yet? Or, or do you think, you know, with what is out there, anybody can really get to an optimal state? Yeah, so, you know, from a, from a diversity of technical tools available, I'm very happy with it. Like there's a okay. multitude of, of different options that if you wanted to deploy a data catalog, you've got a dozen different vendors. If you want to do data lineage, you've got a dozen different approaches, open source and commercial. The place where I find them to be a struggle is integration of those tools is still a big challenge. You know, take, uh, take data lineage, trying to understand how data transforms step to step within an organization and keep an inventory of it. Um, there's a lot of data lineage tools on the market, but if you're an inch, a large enterprise that has dozens of different database platforms across your organization, you may not be able to find one that covers your whole ecosystem. So I think we still have room to improve around, um, you know, describability of data, how we carry metadata about metrics and quality along with data sets as they move across the organization. I think we've got an improvement there. Um, I also think we we complicate things. You know, a lot of tools are 
layers and layers of software mm -hmm. built on top of each other without clear understanding of which interface you access and how you access it. So the consumability gets very, very hard as your environment gets more complex. So I think we've got a lot to do on, on usability of these capabilities. Um, but as we retire legacy systems, as we move to more cloud and services-based architectures, we'll get there. We'll logically make that transition. And where, where do you see you know the next thing coming up i'm you know uh, let's say about uh 10 years ago uh everybody was talking about big data it seems like nobody cares about big data anymore um i mean everybody everybody thinks they have some big data but uh, it might <laughs> most of the big data i see is pretty small data that just happens to run on hadoop or spark um but regardless you know the it the it industry loves to to chase shiny things right for example uh, neural networks have existed for you know decades yes. they, they've been in academia and experiments for decades as well but for whatever reason mostly probably because the flexibility of cloud and the democratization of of all these platforms um ml is a thing now that's like you know in the last few years everybody and their their neighbor has to be doing some uh, machine learning um where, where, what else do you see this going? Where, where, where do we keep up with the power of data? Right nowadays, we are obviously with ML. Now we're talking about uh, predictive and prescriptive um, analytics. What is the next frontier after this? Yeah, so I think uh, there's kind of three categories I tend to think about. I tend to think about you know deep technical implementations that are interesting. I tend to think about operations, and then I tend to think about you know, just new capabilities that allow us to rethink architecture. So on the data science front, I think causal inference is giving us a lot of new capabilities around how we identify why groups of users did things okay. so we can identify interventions or recommendations. You know, medication adherence is a, is a domain where I think we're going to see a lot of change in cause because of causal inference techniques. Being able to better understand why are people taking their medication regimens? Why are they not? How can we help them improve you know, reliability, their health as, a, as an outcome? Um, on the operation side, I think a lot of the ML ops capabilities that are coming out are going mm -hmm. to be, you know, we're talking about them in early days and bleeding edge companies now have platforms to run hundreds or thousands of models at scale to understand the dependencies between those models to measure their drift and to action against you know, adverse behaviors. So I think we're gonna see an ongoing adoption of these ML ops capabilities to organizations so they can operate their data science capabilities at scale. The third place I see is that, you know, kind of what I call settlement of transactions. And you know, blockchain certainly drives the conversation here, but it's not the only technique. You know, we're seeing a lot of new techniques coming out of the sphere around how do we do final settlement? How do we prove ownership of something digital or something mm. tangible in the world that allows us to change our, our application architecture to more distributed, more reliable, more community-based? So I think we're gonna see more of those adoptions of those sorts of capabilities. And in terms of like clients and where they think they should start, what is your recommendation just to get going where should they start looking into like you know should they begin by thinking you know corporate global should they begin by actually looking at what the data sources they already have 
Like, how do you start yeah. your first steps? I, so I tend to say start with data quality. Start with defining what good looks like so that we can instrument our data pipelines to measure and improve that data quality. This is what builds trust in everything else we do. If we're going to build analytical models, if we're going to build dashboards, we have to have trust first. Second, make data available to the masses. Expose it through dashboards, use Looker, bring exploratory capabilities, really enable the edges of the organization. Once they have that trust, then they're going to get interested. They're going to get exploratory. They're going to go inquis inquire about the data and what it means. And then finally, uh, modernize your data platforms. You know, start to retire legacy technologies for data storage. Make sure you've got analytical data stores as well as transactional data stores so your users are getting the right type of capabilities where they need it. You can follow that trajectory. You'll find a lot of your business users will be able to come up with use cases and ideas that they wouldn't have been able to think of in a vacuum. Giving them the tools to start with enables them to think more effectively about how to use the data. How often do you run into a company that might not be in the software or the data business in general that you think can actually monetize their data but just doesn't know it? Do you think, do you see that more common now? Does it ever, you know, especially sometimes we think about like, well, manufacturing, how would you, you know, if I, if I like make paint, how would I monetize my data? You just make paint, right? But then you think about like, well, maybe I have some way or some data that I've captured about manufacturing metrics and ways that I have optimized my operations that is actually valuable for other people in manufacturing as well. Right? Do you do you see this mindset? Is this still not caught on? How often do you run into this conversation? So I run into this fairly often. You know, a lot of organizations that are, you know, they build things tend to think this. You know, organizations that own factories, that own warehouses, that handle logistics tend to think, oh well, I have my data, but it's what I use to run my business. What I ask is that organizations think a little bit more broadly and think about your sister companies, those companies that are inputs to you that you then provide services towards. Manufacturing of paint is a, is a perfect example. You know, the making the paint is great, but you also have to sell it. You have to make sure that you understand trends in the industry. You have to make sure you understand volumes and needs because it's a product that's got a relatively stable shelf life, but not in, inevitably. It can't sit on the shelf forever. So for an organization that manufactures, whether it's paint, whether it's other home supplies, look at who's buying your product. Are they going into Lowe's and Home Depot? Are they ordering it online from a provider? And your data products may not be interesting to the masses, but they're certainly interesting to those individual companies that you meet on either side of the supply chain so they can better predict demand, they can better influence supply chain logistics and, and forecasting, they can better handle shortfalls, and they can more rapidly adjust to changes in the industry. You know, we see a trend that people are moving away from white paint to some other color. They can mm. quickly retool and manage their inventory to accommodate for that change in the industry. So I see it about exchanging data with those that are on, you know, either side of you for the supply chain is, is where the most value is going to be realized. Yeah. And, and this concept of data exchanging 
has has definitely gone mainstream and some some platforms are adopting it faster than others but everybody will get there eventually right it, do you see this again is this another another vehicle for people to monetize their data right if you have some data that you think is valuable and you can scrub any sort of pii or, or proprietary information out of it i kind of see it as in like there's little cost to just putting it out there right yep. you never know right it, it might be that it might be that it somebody finds an actual monetary uh use for it somebody might be willing to pay for it right yep I, you're you're spot on and and the value, the realization of monetizing your data, the bar was much higher two years ago, because if you wanted to publish your data set, like you had to know how to describe an API to consume it. You had to set up a messaging bus to notify people that the data was getting updated. You had to set up a compute infrastructure that was highly scalable. Yeah. Nowadays, it's really as simple as landing the data set into you mentioned Snowflake, GCP or, or AWS they then handle the logistics of making sure people can access the data to store it to billing them in a lot of cases uh, so that that body of friction has gone down and to your point you don't need you don't need hundreds of organizations consuming your data you need a couple of financial analysts that are trying to understand where your market or where your industry is going you need a couple of partner organizations that are like oh we can augment our own supply chain data with this to get more predictive about demand you need a lot to really realize the value and have your own business be complemented in a way much beyond just the value of charging for the data. Yeah, I mean, if you structure it properly for your own internal consumption, it should be very low effort to then offer it to either trusted partners yeah. or to actually paying customers, yeah. right? The, the, the same amount of, of curation and care should be taken into when you're gonna share it internally as to when you're going to share it externally that actually might be an issue sometimes people think oh well it's only for internal consumption so i'm not so worried about it in terms of data quality or in terms of descriptiveness or cataloging etc and obviously that's a mistake you know you're letting your standards drop just because it's going to be consumed internally exactly and that's the maintaining that high trust bar is absolutely critical as you start to publish your data sets your partners want to make sure they can action against it and know that it's accurate and people who are paying for that product are going to have a very very high bar for what value they get from it in a, in a predictable way yeah i mean once you're open to public scrutiny people start really paying attention but yes. but there is there is a big cost into losing your internal trust too Right, it's huge cost when suddenly your own staff doesn't trust the data that you're putting in front of them. And what happens, I see a couple of things uh, usually happen is either they start to cobble up their own solutions, right? So that's one thing that happens. They just go rogue, rogue IT, yes. and they, they create their own thing. And then the more, more troublesome thing is that suddenly uh, different levels of the org have different answers for the same questions and this is where it really gets catastrophic and i we talk about it a lot but i think we're we've got a long runway ahead of us you know in terms of really realizing this across across all companies and rolling out these capabilities so absolutely uh, so i always tell people years. 
Yeah, I tell people, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, are trying to enter this space and some, you know, some people kind of like try to play gatekeepers or whatnot. I'm, I'm like the totally the opposite. I think the, the pie is ginormous and it's barely, it's barely yeah, started to be eaten, right? And especially once you even move out of North America and you think about developing economies where the, the leveraging of data hasn't even started, right? And all these people, again, this is a... a the power of data to to accelerate good outcomes for for um, developing economies too is is really really untapped at yeah. this point and and they all need data pros to execute all these strategies and and you yes. know like the the tide will lift all the boats is, is what I believe as well right? agree agree entirely okay so everybody thanks a lot for listening thank you Joey again for joining me today. And stay subscribed to the Datascape podcast. And until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Navigating the Datascape.